Alright, um, what we're gonna do is like this. We're gonna finish chapter 27. And then we're gonna have a surprise for tomorrow. No, you don't know what the surprise is. It's a surprise, surprise. Do I know what the surprise is? I do know what the surprise is. But I'm not telling you. Because if I tell you, then it won't be a surprise. What? Then we could change it from a surprise. We could, but we won't. Okay. Okay. So we left off. Well, there's this idea, right, that since one of the things that it gives Hashem pleasure, and we discussed at length what that means, right, is the subduing, the suppressing of the sitra achra, do you need to wait for the sitra achra to come and contaminate your mind with all sorts of unholy thoughts? No, you can take any of the perfectly permitted sitra achra things. The altar gives example first of food, then mundane talk, and just mundane thought, and you can subdue the sitra okay? And the, there's a critical distinction between subduing the sitra regarding things which are forbidden versus re- subduing the sitra regarding things which are permitted. Um, and that is, if you abstain from doing something that is forbidden, whether forbidden speech, or forbidden action, or forbidden thought, Regardless of your motivation, that is itself subduing the sitrachra. So, if a person doesn't, uh, a person has a forbidden thought and moves their thought away because they don't want to feel guilty and ashamed for thinking bad thoughts, which is purely a selfish motivation, does that detract from it being the subduing of the sitrachra? And the answer is no. And so that would bring about the revelation of Shem and Rikhlash. On the other hand, if the thing is sitrachra merely because it's not for the sake of Hashem, but there's nothing actually forbidden about it, then exercising self-control and abstinence and whatever those kinds of things are, if it's not being done, as Altar says, for the sake of sacrificing one's animal soul, then it's not actually going to be subduing the sitrachra. Okay. Now, that's the thing that we last left on, Yes. Okay. Um, Did we get to the end of the paragraph? I think we got to the end of the paragraph, yes? Oh, no, we didn't. We did not. No, we did not. Okay. All right. Um, Fine. So let's continue from... From where it says, so too if he restrains. You see where that is? Yes? You know it's quite, I'm not commenting in such a manner that you should actually have to get up and move, but it is quite awkward to have half the class over here and half the class over there, because I am not a cow, so I do not have eyes on the sides of my head, I have eyes in the front of my head. 
I know, just pointing out that it's awkward. No, it's fine. It's quite awkward because I have to keep going with this. Every time. It's fine. Okay. Um, so, too. Uh, where we, um, so too, if he restrains his mouth from uttering words that his heart longs to express concerning mundane matters, likewise with thoughts of his mind, even in the least way, whereby the sitrach stood below, the glory of the holiness of the Holy One, blessed be he, goes forth above to a great extent. Okay, and the, I want to emphasize here in the least way. What does the least way mean? Does it matter how much of this iskafia a person does? No. Okay, there's a discussion in the Gemara. And the Gemara at some point uses an expression. And this expression, um, I'll first tell it to you in Aramaic and translate it. Mali katla, uh, palga mali katla kula. Which means, what does it matter? Or sorry, the other way. Mali katla kula, mali katla palga. What does it matter if you kill half the whole thing or you kill the half the thing? When, when you're talking about killing something, <laughs> half killing is killing. Okay? And, and the underlying idea here is that the sitra achra in the person, which again is our motivation to do things that are not for Hashem, it has the attitude that it runs the show. Right? Um, now, the minute that the sitra achra in a person is faced with the, the, this um, obstruction, Right, that the answer of what's wrong with it is, is well, nothing's wrong with it, there's nothing right with it, right? It's the fact that it comes from the animal soul, that's the problem. The minute that happens, that breaks the sitra achra, the, the klipa's authority over the person in that moment, and if for that matter, it, it, it's like, you know, to kill the person entirely. And if you want to think of this psychologically, I gave you the analogy in the previous class, but when someone is used to getting their way and all of a sudden they don't get their way, right, they have a bit of a breakdown. Right? And in fact, it actually psychologically feels like they're being killed. Like it feels like they're in danger. Right? And so this, this idea, it really doesn't matter. It's not that, oh, in order to subdue the sitrach, I have to abstain from everything that's prevented. No, you don't have to do that. You have to just find some area, ideally one that's sustainable, one that doesn't like, make you dysfunctional, where you kind of give the sitrach a little, you're not in charge. Right? And how to do that in an appropriate way, obviously, is a sensitive matter. Okay. There was a chassid whose name was Rapilopiratra. Have you heard of Rapilopiratra? Okay. Rapilopiratra was very, very religious. Very what? Very religious. He was super, super thrilled. Okay. Um, and one time there was a Febrengen. It was the annual Lagba Omer Febrengen. Um, and the custom was that the Lagba Mafregan, they would, all the chassim would go outside of town to the field, and they would have a giant picnic for Brengen. It would start Erev Lagba in the afternoon, and it would go all the way through the evening. That was the custom. And this was the, the, the time of the second Chabad Rebbe, the Mitla Rebbe, and there were the, the greatest chassidim of the Alt Rebbe who were still alive, and Pilparch was amongst the greatest chassidim of the Mitla Rebbe, and uh, they all gathered for this for Brengen out in the field. But there was a small technical problem, which was there is a halacha that it is proper to fast after every holiday, after every f festival. So after Sukkot, after Pesach, and after Shavuos, it's supposed to fast. Three days. Monday, Thursday, and then the subsequent Monday. It's called Bahab. Bez, hey, bez, for the days of the week. Um, the reason for this is to... 
It's uncommon. It's uncommon, but there are some people that still do it. Um, the, the reason for the fast is as, a, as an atonement for the immodest conduct that may have taken place um, in the feasting and rejoicing over the holiday. Right? That people are getting together, they're drinking wine, and not, every, not all the time is the, is the conduct 100% you know, of the purest way it's supposed to be. And so you know, each person on their level, something could be desired. And so to kind of atone for that, there's this idea of kind of like a mini kind of Yom Kippur kind of event called Bahab. Um, the, 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 the festivals, the festival, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, not because those are not festivals, right? There's no, there's no feasting. Um, and um, so in the earlier generations, it was very, I mean, Hasidim fasted, Bahab, that was just a normal thing. Over the generations, the fasting became less prominent. At one point, the Rebbe actually said that in his view, no one should fast Bahab. It detracts from one's ability to serve Hashem with joy in the way we live our lives nowadays, and so it doesn't accomplish anything positive. So there's actually a sikh where the Rebbe says, unless it's a mandated fast in the code of Jewish law, you shouldn't be fasting. Um, although the Rebbe himself personally fasted Bahab. Um, but this, in this era, they were still fasting Bahab. And so the, the, because you don't fast in the month of Nisan, so the Bahab fast for Pesach doesn't start right after Pesach. It starts after Nisan is over, which sometimes can push the last fast into Erev Lagbover, depending on how the dates work out. So the Chassidim had this problem, is that the tradition was they would start the Febrang in Erev Lagbover by day, but they were all fasting because of the Bahab fast. So the great Chassid of Isaac Humler was a, one of the greatest chassidim of the Alter Rebbe and of the Mitla Rebbe and of the Tzemach Tzadik, the first three Chabad Rebbes. Um, he, was, in addition to being a genius in chassidus, was also a halachic authority, and he made, issued a ruling that the Febrengen is significant to annul the commitment to the fast, and they would all break their fast after Mincha and sit down for the Febrengen. And that's what the whole chassidim did, with the exception of Rebhila Parcher. He did not break his fast. He waited till nightfall, and only once the nightfall ended, he then um, bro broke his fast. And when he sat down for the Febrengen, Isaac Homer gave it to him over the head and berated him for his um, excessive piety that is out of place. And Rebhila um, Parcher absorbed all of the rebuke. And after, he, after the rebuke was finished, um, and Rebhil Parcher became quite emotional. He told the story of how he became, because he was actually originally born as a Chernobyl or Chassid, and he moved to Lubavitch, which is a whole story. He tells that whole, sto that whole story. And then he said that you, that you should believe me that all of my added stringencies, all of my being extra pious, is only motivated by a desire to have a, a slightly deeper appreciation of the godly light found in Chassidus. Meaning that his only motivation was that the, the, the klipa should not coarsen his sensitivity to godliness. Not that he was actually trying to achieve some sort of like status of being a lofty religious person, not trying to earn points. Okay. And this because the, the, so the, the reason I'm telling you the story is that this idea of subduing the sitra in permitted matters is very sensitive to the individual. Right. The, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, the Rebbe Shab said, um, about people that don't eat to do a skafia, that they, it's counterproductive. That don't eat, they abstain from eating as a way of doing a skafia. Because the sense of holier than thou arrogance they develop 
is just feeding the 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 the, the and so they're actually making it worse. It would be better just to eat properly. Then, right? And so the, the, reason, the reason why I'm telling you these things is that this idea, in some sense, it's applicable to everybody, but the fact that it's applicable to everybody and it's in the realm of what's permitted means that every single person, it needs to be um, fitting to where that person is and who that person is, and that's why a person needs to be honest and have mentorship and not just like decide, oh, I'm supposed to subdue the animal soul when it comes to something permitted. A person can end up... Um, doing things that are both from a mental health point of view and also from a religious point of view, things that are very counterproductive. Good? Make sense? Okay. There's a cute story. Um, it was a, a bacher who was a Baal and came to learn in 770. Um, he, was a, he was a graduate student in Greek philosophy. And he was studying in 770 for a year as a Baltruva. And uh, they had a thing where they would hand it out like free or something. I think it was free suits for Pesach to the Bachram. But you imagine you get free suits. The suits don't always fit perfectly. So he was wearing his new suit. And it was a little big on him. And he was a little bit scrawny. And the Rebbe sees him in the hallway. And the Rebbe calls him over and, and tells him that um, Hasidicism is not asceticism. <laughs> that, you know, because he looked like he was... Hasidicism is not asceticism. Asceticism means to deprive yourself of physical things in life. Oh. That, you know, really a, like that. A, a, person, a person can take the idea, oh, you're trying to be spiritual, so we avoid physicality for the sake of avoiding physicality, and that's not the idea here, right? And that's what the altar is alluding to when he says this idea it's in a small way, right? Each person, what's small for them, right? Okay. Okay. Do you want one more story on this theme or no? Yeah. Okay. So there was a chassid, his name was um, Itcha the Masmid. Itcha the Masmid, it wasn't his actual name. His name was Yitzchak Horowitz. Itcha is the nickname for Yitzchak. And he was called Masmid because he was very diligent. Very diligent in his studies and his davening. And um, so he was also extremely from. Um, so one time he was staying at the home of a family called the Nanases. The Nanases had a son, his name was Eliezer Nanas. Anyone here read the book Sabato? Okay. What? Sabato. If you haven't read the book Sabato, right now write down that I have to read the book Sabato and find a copy and read the book. Sabato? Yeah. I'm just saying I started from the beginning. Two words, if you can't have the voice, wait, let me pass, I'll do that. It's not that gory. No, I think it was that they put him in the shower, like, called water, and the cold water, and stuff, and then they tell you that they hung him up with the sign that says, Nazis? Nazis? You should read the book. Oh, yeah, Nazis. What? Laser Nanas. No, like, He was in Soviet, it was in Soviet, Sabota means Shabbos, Saturday, in Russia. The Soviet Union. He was in Soviet prison camp for 20 years and never violated Chavez and, uh, and he never ate non-kosher food. That's the story. The Rebbe told him to write down the, his story, but he wrote it in a, in a, in, to leave out the really extreme stuff. 
He left out, and also not to, it's also written under a pseudonym and no mention of him being a chassid because it was written when it was still communism and the Rebbe didn't want, like, because the communism. It also was not a term for all. They yeah, they just reprinted it with retype set. It's very nice. Yeah, they just rehab it and it Yes. Yeah. How do you spell that? S U B A T A, I think. Subata. 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 I don't speak Russian. That's my wife. She speaks Russian. Anyway, so his name was Lazar Nanis. So his family, they lived in a city called Kharkov. And um, so this Chasadich, the Masmid, was passing through and, and they were ho- and the and so the Nanases were hosting him for Shabbos. And so Mrs. Nanas, this this laser Nanas's mother, she asked the Chidamasmid, um, what does she have to do so that he'll actually eat the food in her house? Now, I mean these are like serious Chabad Chasidim. So Ichidamasmid said, if you buy a new pot, you kosher the pot. I check the knife of the Shaykh right before he shechs the chicken. And I check the knife right after he shechs the chicken, make sure the knife is perfectly smooth. And you don't use any chicken from any other, other than my chicken, then I'll eat your, the food that you make. And so she did. And it was Shabbos, and, and after he finished davening, which was like very close to the end of Shabbos, comes back to the house, and there's like a little febrengen set up, and he makes kiddush, and they bring out, which was some, a dish, which was like, because they weren't that wealthy, right? So they, they made it something that was kind of like a combination between chond and coco. Like a what? It's a kugel. It was called the kugel, but it had some meat in it, right? Because it's a way of making it the sugar, yeah. yeah. So, um, and uh, she brings it out, puts it down, and he and Itch the Masmid um, looks at it and says, "Did you only use from my chicken, the chicken that I watched bring shaft?" And she said, "Yeah, yeah." And he looks at it, and he just like he kind of nonchalantly pushes it away. It doesn't. And so the the the, the rav, the, the the rabbi of Kharkov, was a big big chas in his own right, said, are you not going to eat it? He says, no. He says, well, I haven't had any kugel Shabbos. So I'll eat the kugel. And he ate the kugel. Afterwards, Mrs. Nanis remembered that she ran out of schmaltz of chicken fat. It wasn't enough, and so she added a little bit from another chicken. And um, anyway, so a little while later, Itch of the Masmid was in Yechidah, some private audience with the fifth Chabad Rebbe, the and the person who was in charge of bringing people in and taking them out of Yechidus happened to be Lazer Nanis, the son who later grew up to be. It was just like they asked him to do it. So he was, and so when Ichlamasim went into Yechidus, he did a very grave sin, which is he kept the door slightly open so he could hear what the Rebbe Rashab and Ichlamasim spoke about. And Ichlamasim had told over this whole story, and he started crying that maybe he's arrogant and he's self-absorbed and he thinks that, and he's holding to, after all, the Rav ate the Kogol. If the Rav ate the Kogol, then I should have eaten the Kogol. And who do I think I am? And, I'm, and, and the Rebbe Rashab kept trying to calm down. So he says, no, for you, it's appropriate. No, it's you, for you, that level of extra piety is appropriate. And it went back and forth and to, 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 to calm him down, but he was so concerned that maybe his motivation wasn't really the sitrachar, but uh, to do the sitrachar, but really the opposite. What? That perhaps was coming from sitrachar. One time, Mitchell the Masmid went into, was going to raise money, and he was shouting to another chassid. They walked into a shul, and everyone stood up, so Mitchell the told him to sit down. And the other chassid, who wanted to, like, you know, because in Chabad, they like to, like, stick it to people, says, who said they're standing up for you? Maybe they were standing up for me. Each of the masmids face turns white and says, You're right. 
there's at least seven things that you're superior to me in. Like, how could I be so arrogant? And he took it very seriously. How could I be so arrogant? I think they were standing up for me. It was obvious they're standing up. Richard Hospital is like a whole different level of human being. But anyway, so the little measures each person, you know, where they're at, no matter how lofty a person can always, you know, unless you're an absolute tzaddik, there's always some level in which you can find the place and things that are totally permitted to subdue the sitrachra. Good? Mm-hmm. <coughs> um, so now what happens? So the glory of sitra, the sitrachra is subdued, the glory of holiness is blessed above. Okay. And from this holiness issues a sublime holiness on the man below to assist him with a great and powerful aid in serving him who is blessed. So in other words, that this pleasure of Hashem that we discussed and it has actually effect on the person which is that it provides a divine assistance okay <coughs> now have you ever so here, here's the thing about divine assistance <coughs> what does divine assistance feel like what does divine assistance feel like it doesn't feel like anything. That's important to know. It doesn't feel like anything. How would you know you're getting divine assistance? The way you know you're getting divine assistance is being, being very, very honest and reflecting on your life over a period of time. And you start to realize that where you are now and what you're dealing with now is not commensurate with where you used to be. And it's not really so clear how that happened. You know what I'm talking about? That's called divine assistance. Okay? It comes sometimes in more overt and less overt. But it's like when a person, I'll give you, just give you a simple example. Yeah? Are there periods of time where you, know, like you have maybe a day or a week or a few weeks where you're just generally more optimistic about serving Hashem, more enthusiastic about it? <coughs> and when you're there, that feels natural. That feels perfectly normal, right? As long as you were to stop and reflect on the fact that, like, I mean, last month I was pretty down on everything. Like, Nothing overtly necessarily happened to change that. And especially if you start thinking about like more extended periods of time. So the idea is that if you want to think of divine assistance, it's kind of like being on an airplane. <coughs> Once the airplane is taken off and you're like cruising, it doesn't feel like you're traveling, right? But you're moving incredibly fast. Okay. And so what often happens is that we, and this, by the way, in, in physics, there's an idea that you can't feel speed. You can't feel velocity. You can't feel how fast you're moving. What's the only thing you can f- feel? The air around you. No. You can feel the change in velocity. Okay, it's called acceleration. So when the airplane's taking off, you feel it. When the airplane's moving up right, at an angle, so it's changing the, the direction of the velocity, right? Um, that this is this that there's no way to tell if you're in something that is moving at a constant speed or you're something something still feels the same. In a similar sense, you can feel like when you're putting in effort, right, to really work on yourself. You can feel that. You can also feel when you're making the wrong choices, right? We all know what making the wrong choices. If you know the right choice ahead of you and you decide you're not going to put the effort into that, right? Mm-hmm. Those things you can feel, right? But then there's this kind of like cruising that you don't really feel. And sometimes if you think about it, you're cruising at an altitude. You're cruising at a speed that's way beyond what, you know, seems to be within an honest assessment of what you've put into it. And yet you're there. So then 
If it's not entirely your doing, then what does that mean? That's the divine assistance. Okay? If you're sitting around waiting for the divine assistance to strike you, like you know, some like flash of inspiration, you might as well keep waiting because it's not going to happen. Okay. So this is what the rabbis meant. If a man sacrifice consecrates himself in a small measure down below, he's sanctified much more from above. Okay. So out there was kind of like bribing a little bit. It's like, aside from just, you know, the fact you bring out this revelation of Hashem by doing this escafia, also, it supercharges, it elevates the level in which you can serve Hashem. Okay? So, here's a, here's a, here's a, here's a interesting thing. There's something called praying to God, davening. Davening is generally hard to do. Why is it hard to do? That's not hard. You'd have no problem concentrating. You have to connect to Hashem, right? Okay. And that's hard. What? Well, it's doing it, right? Okay, yeah. Okay. Now, what do you think happens if you have a person who does their measure of escafia? What does that do to their ability to daven? Yeah, in other words, in, in other words like this. Some people, yeah, the the, the idea of, of 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 actually talking to Hashem, actually thinking about Hashem, that feeling like Hashem is present, right? Is a very interesting idea, it's a very beautiful idea, but it's also very theoretical. It's like very hard if they sit down and do it themselves. It seems very remote. Okay. What could a person do to just change that baseline? That it doesn't actually seem that remote. Not that it all of a sudden becomes easy and intuitive, but that it seems much more like accessible. Uh, like, does the remind no, because when you do a scafia, you get this divine assistance, and that divine assistance makes you naturally more sensitive. Oh, right. And if you want to think about it, think about like the effect of having a good sleeping, eating, exercise routine. Is the benefit of those that you feel good right after doing those things? I mean, you might, like if you actually might feel good right after exercising, right? But what's the real benefit of those things? Long term, right? A person who eats, sleeps, and, and exercises in a proper, regular way, right? That person, in all sorts of other areas, they're just, they're, they're more, they're more capable, they're more themselves, right? All these types of things, right? But it's not like you feel the automatic impact, right? In fact, one of the things people tell you, like if you, it's not like you're going to eat the right food today and then boom, right? That's not how it works. And so, and, and, and the other thing is, right? A small amount of, of even those types of things can have a very big effect. Okay? To give you like two very simple things, right? What is the most important exercise to do? Walking. No. Breathing. No. Breathing. No. Squatting. Depends. On what? On, your body. On what you're trying to, like, what you're doing before, no? No. Um, the most important exercise is the one you're going to actually do. Is what? The one you're going to actually do. Which is? Doesn't matter. Whatever one you will actually do. In other words, the benefits oh. of even a small amount of regular exercise are so much greater than no exercise that wondering about which exercise to do is actually a destructive thing. If you're already exercising regularly, then we can debate, like, you should you do this one, this one, right? But 
it's like almost a meaningless discussion because the, 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 there's tremendous benefit from that small thing. Okay? If you have to make one change in sleep patterns, what's the one change in sleep pattern to make? Not earlier. What? Go to bed at a consistent time. Which time? Doesn't matter. Whatever time you can go to bed consistently at. Because the, the effect of consistent going to bed, right? So go to bed early. But some people going to bed early is just not going to work. But if they go to, they can consistently go to bed at 11.30, and they really could do that. So then, and, but the fact they keep trying to go to bed at 10.30 means that sometimes they go to bed at 10.30, and sometimes they go to bed at 3.30. So just go to bed at 11.30, because that's what you can do consistently, right? You get what I'm saying? The small things have a tremendous effect. That's true physically. That's what we're saying here. That these small things... They bring out such a tremendous revelation of Hashem into the world, and that has an effect on the person. But does this, when you're doing this talk or whatever, and you're like, you're feeding your animal side that you're not in control or whatever it is, does that mean over time your animal side will also get sent to the well, That's the end of the chapter. When we get to the end of the chapter, I'll talk about that. Okay. This is a part, so there's a little detour. This is a part from fulfilling the positive commandment of the Torah, sanctify yourselves and be ye holy. I like that, be ye holy. What do you guys have? You shall be holy. Uh, shall is like, that actually really does mess, it up, mess with it. Because when you say you shall be holy, what does that mean? It's like commanding. It's commanding. So, so we're going to do a quick grammar lesson, okay? In Hebrew, the future tense can mean both predictive and command. Okay? If I say, um, go. what? Go. No, go is command form, as a command word. No, if, I say, if I say, if I say, right? Does tase mean I am predicting that you will do something, or it means I'm telling you to do something? And the answer is the word means both, and it all depends on context. Okay? Right? There is a command form, a say, which means do, right? and that's clearly a command. But if I say tase, right, mm-hmm. or tasi, if you're female, right, then it's not clear whether I'm commanding you to do it, instructing you to do it, or I'm predicting that you will do it. Okay? Yeah. What does yeah mean? It will be. Is that, is that, a, is that a command? Well, when you have it in the Torah, Vayemer Hashem Hashem says ye, or. Is he predicting that there will be light, or is he commanding the light to come into existence? What? Commanding. Because right? it's not going to happen without his authority. Right? I'm just using it as a grammar thing. So the word... So, Does that work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If you tell me in... Well, it depends. I'm not speaking to you from a position of authority, right? If I'm speaking to you from a position of authority, right? Right? It's like, you know, when the Gabbai gets up in 770 and says in, 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 in Yiddish, the order of things will be. He's not like breaking a prediction. He's telling you this is how it's going to be because I run the shul here and this is what's going to happen, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, so, so the future tense has those two meanings, okay? Um, and in English, it also can have that, right? But we sometimes add the word should, Right? Sometimes if we want to make it a command, then they're like, okay. So what that does is that means that in Hebrew, um, 
there's always this interesting play you can make when reading the Chumash. Whenever there is a command, you could read it as a prediction of the future. When there's a prediction of the future, you could read it as a command. Right? That allows you to have these, like, all these interesting meanings, right? So, for instance, there's a command, you should love Hashem your God, right? So that's a command. You must love. Whether you like it or not, you've got to do it, right? But you could also read it as, you will love Hashem. Why? Because the previous verse says, Shema, which is command form. Shema means understand, contemplate, pay attention. To the what? That Hashem is one. And if you, if you Shema that Hashem is Echad, Vahavta, the consequence is you will love Him. Now you could read it that way too. So you could read it as there's, there's a command to love, or you could read it as this is a prediction that if you did the Shema, which it clearly is a command, then you will love by default. Okay? So this, this, this is, so now if you look in the Hebrew, there's, there's, a, there's a mitzvah in the Torah. It says, Vihiskadishtem. Okay? What does Vihiskadishtem mean? What does Vihiskadishta mean? You will be holy. You will be holy. Okay. It actually doesn't mean you will be holy. Okay. If you, if, if, you will make that? You you make yourself be holy. Okay. Now if you if you turn the if you turn the page Why if you have to sell. What? Why have to sell? Because because of the means is a reflexive verb, it means to act on oneself. Okay, so now, if you turn the page, you see the second line in the middle of the line. It says the Yisim Kedoshim. Okay, so, so the verse. Those, right, not right next to each other, but it's like part of one, one passage. Okay, so v'skadishtem v'isim kedoshim. Okay, now if I translate v'skadishtem, yourselves holy. This marker also seems not to be so great. Apologize. And this one says, there we go, that's a better mark. And you will be holy. Okay? Now remember this idea that the future can be both either predictive or commanding, right? Read it. I'm going to just explain it to you actually. So the way the author was going to read it is like this. One of these is a command, and one of these is a promise. One of these is telling you what you need to do, and one of them is telling you what's going to happen. Which one's which? 
You could read it as a command, but it's not. And you will be holy. Yeah, you will be holy. Why will you be holy? Because here, he's emphasizing this is, and you will make yourselves holy. That's a command, meaning this is something you have to do. And if you do that, the consequence is you will be holy. Okay? But now, if in this reading, is there a commandment to be holy? There is no commandment to be holy. Okay? Right? If you read it this way, if you read this as a command and this is a promise, so there's a promise you will be holy, but the command is to make yourself holy. Okay? Now, to be fair, not everyone reads the Torah this way. For instance, the Ramban, he reads this as a command. Or not this, he reads actually different verses of command. Kedoshim to you. Okay? You will be holy. Um, okay? But the way the Altarbah reads it is that the command is Viskadishtem. This is the command. And this is a promise, okay? Right? So this is the mitzvah. Then what's this? If you do a mitzvah and then good stuff happens to you, what do we call that? A reward. So what is the reward of doing the mitzvah of making yourself holy? That you will be holy. Now, here's the rule. Is there a mitzvah? This is very important. If the mitzvah is to make yourself holy and the reward is you'll be holy, then the making yourself holy doesn't mean you're actually holy, right? right? So if I say, for instance, there is a mitzvah to love Hashem, the reward for that mitzvah can't be that you actually love Hashem, right? Because actual loving would be the mitzvah, right? If I say there's a mitzvah to um, eat matzah, the reward for the mitzvah is not that you ate food, right? Because that, that the reward is something that comes. I say that the reward is that you're stronger, close, connected to Hashem? No, because that's the mitzvah. The reward has to be something that comes. What's a reward? A it's a result it. of. It's not the activity itself. So what is the reward? So that's what the altar was. So he says like this. There's a positive mitzvah. Right? Aside from all the good stuff we said, there's a positive mitzvah, which is v'skadishtim, to make yourself holy. Yes. The reward is it not actually being holy? Because the, the whole point isn't about us being holy, but about us bringing Hashem into the world. So the reward right. is bringing Hashem. No, no, no. I hear you're saying just wait. Okay. okay. So this is the mitzvah, this is the reward. It's not a mitzvah, it's a mitzvah. Okay. By dedicating itself through, I can't even say that word, abstemiousness, whatever that is, in permissible things, the meaning of sanctify yourself is to make yourself holy. That is to say that alone truth, he is not holy and separated from the for it is at its strength and his might as one birth and left part, yet one subdues the inclination and sanctifies himself. So what is the emphasis of making yourself holy? First off, let's ask her a question. What does it mean to be holy? Well, you've already made yourself. No, no. What does it mean to be holy? Be what? You're separated. You're separated. Okay. Tell me something that a holy person would never do. Bad things. Why? Why? 
No, no. Because they don't have anything inside them that would motivate them to do bad things. Okay. Is that even special? Sadiqim are holy. Is it actually Wait, 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 wait. Trust me, just wait. So to make yourself holy, to make yourself holy means not that you are holy, okay? And, and here the Hebrew, here the Hebrew um, is also very important. So this word, make, yeah? How do you say make in Hebrew? Ase. Ase is to, is to make. Ase means to make. It means to act or do. It also means to force. It has all of those meanings. Yes? Yes. Okay? It's the same word. The word means... Now, first of all, does it make sense why you would have one word that means to make, to act, or do, and to force? Yeah. Yeah. Because if you, let's say, make a table, what does it mean to make a table? Well, you have to do something, right? Yeah. And you're forcing the wood to comply with what you want, right? So you see how it's like has all three of those connotations to it, yeah. right? Okay. So now, if the emphasis here says, and the altar says, you shall make yourself, what does that mean? That you're actually holy? You are? You're forcing yourself to? Take out the word be, which is not on my list. To act holy. Right? What does it mean to make yourself holy? What? No, it's not a show. It's a behavior. Okay? Being polite is not a show. Like you're not really you? No. No, 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 you're not. No, 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 no. Not, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. The not being really you is when you're not acknowledging that what you're doing is just a doing. Right. So, so for, feels very doing. The, yeah, it feels doing. You're doing. And you know you're doing. And everyone else knows you're doing. You're under delusion. You're under, this is the point. There is no mitzvah to be holy. So don't pretend to be holy. You're not holy. In fact, you're the anything but holy. But despite the fact that you're not holy, you're going to, at least when it comes to certain, some small thing, behave and act as if you're holy. So, would a holy person eat lunch because it tastes good? No. So therefore, I'm not going to eat lunch because it tastes good. Now, does that mean I'm actually holy? No, because I would eat But I'm going to act, right? This is the idea of sanctifying yourself what's permitted. Okay? Now, so, and, and this is very important. The danger comes about when you don't do the mitzvah of ases of making yourself holy, but you actually pretend to be holy, right? You think you're going you're gonna to be holy. You're not being holy. You're just, you're not pretending. What is the difference between, let me give you an example. Yeah? What is the difference between um, an actor, an actor, like a professional actor, and a regular person? There's a very big difference. A regular person, they go to work, right? At their work, do they have to do things? Yeah. Are those things that they themselves are naturally inclined to do? No. They have to schlep things. They have to be polite to people. They have to do all sorts of things that they're not naturally inclined to do, and they're not in the mood to do, right? Do they do them? Okay. Is anyone under the delusions that they're just doing those things because that's what they need to do? 
that, that, that's good, right? No, right? You know, it's, we all know that like, the person who's polite to you at the bank is not polite to you because they're necessarily want, like you. They're polite to you because that's part of the job, right? Okay. Now, if an actor is a really good actor, number one, they make it seem to everybody else that they're actually the character, right? And if they're a really good actor, they actually have to do this weird thing called getting into character. What is getting into character? No, I mean, yeah, they have to, they have to actually pretend to themselves that they're someone else, right? Okay, so is there a mitzvah to pretend you're a tzaddik, to convince others, or to God forbid convince yourself that, no, there's no such mitzvah. I'm not a tzaddik, you know I'm not a tzaddik, no one here thinks I'm a tzaddik. I, I think of myself as holy and not like the example of, not, of holding myself back for things that are permitted. Um, it's easier for me to do that if I think of myself and I act as if I'm holy. If I like, convince myself that I'm holy, so I can't do that. If you convince yourself you're holy, then, then what? You'll do better acting. Yeah. But then, but 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 then you're living a delusion. And then you're only going to be holy in the things that weren't so that the sitrach isn't so strong with you anyway. It, 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 when you hold yourself back, do you think you're like like holier now? Anymore? No, exactly. But I'm saying, I couldn't, what could help me hold myself back if I'm like, one second, I have to be a little holier right now. Why? Why? You have to live up to your... No, just to do this. I'm a little bit holy right now. Right. But remember, we have to be careful. Words are helpful when they convey ideas, but it doesn't matter the words you use ultimately, right? You're not actually believing that you're becoming the kind of person that, that, that right. is removed from, right. right? So when you're saying be holy, you don't mean what the Alter Rebbe means, be holy. You're, right. you know, you're using it just a, you're not using it in the philosophically correct way. Which it doesn't matter. You can use whatever wording you want in your own head. Right, but like sometimes, like a person like really starts believing themselves, like you know, I'm you know I'm not the kind of person that would ever do X, Y, and Z, and that's what, and so I'm going to abstain from X, Y, and Z because that's not who I am. And they say, no, no, that is exactly who I am. I really would do X, Y, and Z, but you know what? No. I'm not going to do it. Why? Definitely. I'm going to step on the sitrach a little bit. That's why. And now I'm under any delusions that now I've all of a sudden become a big tzaddik because of that. No. So I am, be, I am making myself be holy. Making myself be holy means performing the, 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 yeah. the behavior of a holy person. Yeah. Okay? In some so small way. I convince myself that I'm actually holy? What? No. 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 no, 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 no. Don't do that. On the contrary. No, Don't do that. And by the way, if you convince yourself you're actually holy, you know what's going to happen? Hashem's going to remind you in a very, very um, stark, way. stark way that you are not holy. Like it happens. So you, I don't know if you ever had the experience in life where like you, things are going well and you start really becoming convinced that like you've made it somehow spiritually, yeah. and it doesn't take that long before like there's some like major failure, in like whether it's like you know between you and another person, or it's between you and God, but like there's something like it just like you know, red glaring sign, like there's a lot of citra acha inside of you. Right, okay, so you don't, don't start like, the mitzvah is to, to, right, to make, and the emphasis of making is not the transformation of yourself into holy, but the acting, doing, forcing yourself to behave in such a manner as if you were holy. Does that mean you have to do it all the time? No. What's, you know, appropriate for that person? 
what happens then? Then shall ye be holy, meaning normal English, and you will be holy. That is to say, in the end, he will become truly holy and separate from the Sitra Achra by virtue of being sanctified in a great measure from above and being helped to expel from his heart little by little. Now, we just said that you'll never become a tzaddik. So what does this mean that slowly you become holy? So we think of our lives as multifaceted. There are areas of our lives where we can become holy. Like, really. Areas of our life. I'll give you a very simple example. A person becomes religious and they stop eating non-kosher food. Yes? At what point do they no, at, 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 at what point does it go from I'm no longer not eating non-kosher food, but non-kosher food just doesn't in my mind register as food? By the way, that's like a thing that happens to a lot of people if they're religious is that like if you're in the airport and all there are non-kosher restaurants, then how does your mind register that? It's not food. It's like I'm in a place with no food. Not I'm in a place with food that I'm not allowed to eat. I'm in a place yeah, with... There's, there's no food here, right? You don't feel like there's food that I'm not allowed to eat. You just feel like there's no food. So with regard to the non-kosher food, you have become... Holy. You become sensitive to the fact that it doesn't belong... Why can we be drilled like that with So the thing is, the thing is, the thing is that the more escafia a person does what slowly happens is that more and more things are like that. Will they ever become a tzaddik so that they're completely removed from the sidrach entirely? No. Okay? Um, but you can definitely get to, uh, but it can, it can, right? That little by little in one area and another area, right? But all that means is that because sidrach is layer upon layer is that your battle to sidrach just goes on to a higher plane. And just, and as you, you move from being in like little leagues to professional leagues. Okay? So, you know, and sometimes like, people are like, I'm going to have to battle with this the rest of my life. And the answer is like, no, no, you want us to battle with this. You might have to battle with some other way, in some more subtle way. Right? You're not going to become a tzaddik, but regarding certain issues in life, right? Then, then, but, and that comes about because the subduing of the sitra has this reward that you will be holy in certain small respects slowly over time. Right? Um, which is why, like, this is, to be honest, the truth is like a Bainini is not a person that really struggles with like the wrong stuff for the most part. Because a Bainini is a person that's serving Hashem and they're overcoming their sitrachah and they're subduing it, right? So that means what's happening over time is even though they never like, the fundamental conflict is always there, it, the conflict is being played out in a much more subtle way, right? It's not they're on the edge of like absolute sin all the time. Like, if you're on the edge of absolute sin, then that means, like, it's not just, oh, well, you're not supposed to be a tzaddik. Yeah, but even in the realm of not being a tzaddik, that's pretty, like, crass. You hear what I'm saying? So, the author was saying, how does a person get to that point where, where really certain things that used to be a struggle they had to overcome just aren't an issue in their life anymore? That's an effect of this assistance from above. And it happens, as he says, little by little. Slowly, you don't realize it's happening until you turn around. And it's like, oh, it's like that's not an issue. I still have issues, just not that issue. Make sense? Okay. Okay. Um, we have ten minutes left, and I want to talk about something which is comes out of this that we've learned. That's kind of technical, but I think very important. But before I do, I want to just if anyone has any unanswered questions, what we've learned. Every time I can 
and it just like, like, it's been a couple of months in me as well, it's always because of Hashem. Either it's something that you did by little skafias, little subduing the here and there, or alternatively, it's Hashem realizing that you're in a very sorry state. In and that's in a very sorry state. And He needs to come and inspire you because you're not going to get out of this mess yourself. It's one of the two. No, it could apply in its. Well, it could be for a person. No, then, then, yeah, then it doesn't. Yeah, then, yeah. If you're like a regular Orthodox Jew, you're not eating a McDonald's is accomplishing nothing. No, I know in the Shkafi wise, but I'm saying holy wise, I'm saying you can have areas where, yeah, it's not a desire for you, right? Right. And nothing to do with the Shkafi. Right. Just be anything grow up in your home, it could be like. Well, so part of that actually is, but if you grow up religious, like you did do a lot of subduing the sitrachah by virtue of like just how your parents raise you. Yeah, but remember here, one of the, the goal, the, the thing here is not the virtue of, he's not speaking about the, about the importance of your own personal avayda. He's just speaking about the fact that sitrach was subdued, right? So if a child grows up, Right in a home where the parents he wants to eat the non-kosher food his parents say no and he wants to his parents say no he, he, like the parents like the sitrach or has been subdued quite a bit by how his parents have raised him. Even if they don't want to, do you know? I mean, outright because they obviously yeah. want to. Yeah. So. So does that mean that so in life, if you're working on something, that after some time that shouldn't be something you're working on? If you're working what on something. No, 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 no. If you're holding yourself back. No, 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 no. Because, for instance, two things that you'll always struggle with are heretical thoughts and erotic thoughts. Okay? That's number one. The other thing is, um, two things that everybody, every Bainini always struggles with are heretical thoughts and erotic thoughts. That's what Dalsherba says. Those are, those are, yeah, that's the beginning of the chapter. Like, you're never going to be free of those things. Um, um, but, there are degrees of things. Even in that, there are degrees of things, right? Yeah. And then there, are, and but it's not necessarily that the thing you're working on—that's where the effect of this holiness comes into your life. Now, a person could be doing a scafi in one area, but the holiness actually has an effect in some other area. So, is there never? I was saying before, is never a point where your animal souls on par with where you are? A hundred percent. Okay, not hundred percent, but I mean. Like your animal soul should be too. Your animal soul, no, your animal soul just gets more, just, just, it doesn't get, the animal soul can get refined in a superficial way, not in a deep way. Fundamentally, the animal soul is still not, you know. But on some level, it will kind of like quiet down a little. Yeah. So you'll stop, like once you reach a certain level, you'll stop having certain temptations, basically. Right, but the thing is, this is the thing is more, you'll start having certain temptations, but you'll have other temptations. And those other temptations, because the root of all of them is the same thing, or you can slide all the way back down, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like the person who like starts giving in to let's just take the, take the extreme example. Let's say somebody 
who 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 like really works on themselves, and then people start to really respect them, right? And that person starts getting a lot of covet, and that person starts indulging in the animal soul's desire for covet, for for honor, right? Once they're doing that, they're like opening the floodgates all the way down to the lowest and most debased depraved things, right? In other words, there very much is this, like I gave you the analogy of the bicycle, either going up or you're going down, right? And so you don't ever, there's never a point where you get a sit to a safe place. Even if you've become holy, that becoming holy is in a certain respect and provided you're still moving in the right direction. But if you make the choice to like indulge, then that, then that can all backslide and disappear because fundamentally the animal soul is not changing. Right? That's what a tzaddik is, is that fundamentally the animal soul has been changed. Okay. All right. So I want to just talk. The, so, so the altar mentions here that this is a positive mitzvah. Now, what that means is, for those of you who don't know the word mitzvah means, it means it's an obligation. <laughs> an obligation, for those of you who know what that means, it means it's something that you are Monday. required to do. So, what have we just learned? You are required to to make you to act holy, even though you're not really holy. Which means that in areas which, and that is, so we had, a, we had the idea of eskafia and forbidden things, right? Which is the Don't turn astray after your eyes and after your heart, right? Okay, that's a, that's, a, that's a requirement as a negative commandment. But there's also a positive commandment to make yourself holy. Now, what happens if you have the opportunity to do a positive commandment and you decide not to do that? What's that called? If you, are, you have the opportunity to do a positive mitzvah you're required to do and then you fail to do so because you decide you don't want to do it. Yeah. That's also kind of a sin, isn't it? Yeah. So, if there is something that is 100% perfectly permitted, yeah, and you could abstain from it, okay, don't, that's an avera. and you don't, you have done the avera of not doing of not doing the mitzvah of, of sanctifying yourself with permitted. What? Like what? And everything that an Avera happens, happens when you don't do that? Well, it's, remember, we, we discussed there's a difference between positive and negative. So you're not, like, it's not the same. Uh, uh, if you neglect, if the, if the Avera here I'm is just the... Makes a hole no, 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 that's just the positive. That's just negative Averas. But it is a rebellion against the Shem. It requires tshuva, and, you know, you have to be forgiven, that whole thing. But... That means, does a Bainani ever miss an opportunity to sanctify? No. Because no. what? Because if a Bainani missed that opportunity, then they would be sinning, and a Bainani doesn't sin. Okay, so now here's a very important thing. This means we have actually three levels, okay? And this is very important that we have these three categories clear. Okay. There's actually four levels, okay? Um, but you'll see what I mean. So there's There are things that no one is allowed to do. 
What's an example of something that no one's allowed to do? Murder. Murder. Can you tell me more, more realistic, more practical? Steal. A little more practical. Eat on kosher food, right? Not say Lashon Hara, not think bad about another Jew, not indulge in heretical thoughts, right? Right, what? Disrespect your parents. There's things no one's allowed to do. Think bad thoughts about someone is not an Avera. What? You're not allowed to, I mean, there's, it gets very technical, but most, yes. Probably not. I have no control of my thoughts. You, we do. We discussed that before. Okay. But then there are things that I am not allowed to do. What, what makes it that I'm not allowed to do it? That are bad for you. It means those things that even though there's nothing in the Shulchan anywhere that says it's forbidden, but it in no way contributes to my being able to serve Hashem. So is it personal? Like something for me that could lead me away, but for you could be like totally fine? Even if it doesn't lead you away, but it doesn't contribute to anything. Okay. It's for What? Right. Right. So for instance, okay. So for instance, this, I'm going to give an extreme example. The sixth piece of cake for dessert in no way contributes to me being able to serve Hashem in any way better. Yeah? Right? And so therefore, as my, my eating it is, is, is my eating it is doing something which is just totally giving into the sitracha, right? Which I don't have to do. And therefore I become obligated to not do it, which means that's something that I'm actually not allowed to do, right? Yeah. Okay. Now there's things, things that you are allowed to do. What makes it that something you are allowed to do? It's permitted, and if you didn't do it, it would have a negative consequence on your ability to serve a chef. This what gets very, very, right? This category, this over here, is very fuzzy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Between the I am not and I am. Right, I am not allowed and I am allowed, right? For instance, am I allowed to have a cup of coffee? Yes. Right. So like, I mean, here's the question, is having the cup of coffee gonna help me serve Hashem? If the answer is yeah, even though that's not my prime motivation, I'm allowed to do it. But if it's just a pure indulgence, then I'm not allowed to do it, right? Why could it be both? It can't be both. It really can't? You can't enjoy the coffee right now. I didn't say anything about enjoying the coffee. Enjoying is an effect of things. We're not talking about enjoying. Wait, Am I allowed to have a cup of coffee? If the cup of coffee is not kosher, Indulge means you're doing something that it ha- only the only the only thing that it does is it make is it feels good. It has no other. Doesn't that mean? What? Doesn't that mean enjoy? No, enjoyment is something that happens afterwards. Mm-hmm. Okay. If I am tired and I have the coffee, does that mean I don't enjoy the coffee? Oh, I do enjoy the coffee, but, but clearly there's another reason to have the coffee, which is. They'll wake me up. And if wake me up, will I probably serve Hashem better? Okay, so then that's already something I'm allowed to do, right? So here's the thing. There are plenty of things that if you call up a rabbi and say, I'm allowed to do it, he will say, What? Yes. But nonetheless, you're actually not allowed to do it. Because do those things in any way contribute to serving Hashem? Because for some other person, right? The Shulchan Aruch speaks in general. Okay? So there's all kinds of behavior, right? But that, well, that's the difference between a rabbi and a mashpia. A mashpia is supposed to help you figure out this area. Right. So, right, am I allowed to have ice cream? Well, here's an interesting question, right? If I'm having ice cream 
just because you know I happen to like ice cream, then what have we learned? By having the ice cream, I'm, I'm, I'm choosing not to do a mitzvah that I'm obligated to do, which is to not, which is to subdue the sitracha, right? On the other hand, if I'm having a party with my kids, right, and I have a little ice cream, and it, you know, Hans and Luke, Tati's having ice cream with everybody, right? That's like, right? But that explains why like, you have a little bit of ice cream. It doesn't explain why you have like six helpings of ice cream, right? Right? Or, you know, right? Maybe. Or maybe, you know, like you, you, right? So the thing is, the allowed to, what makes it go from I'm not allowed to I'm allowed is that it actually has some concrete, it's permitted and has some concrete benefit to serving Hashem, right? But if it has no concrete benefit to serving Hashem, then even though the rabbi tells you it's perfectly permitted, it's actually not. So why does the say it's permitted? Because to some people, sometimes, okay. Then the question is, even if I'm allowed to, there's a separate question, which is, should I? Should I? And the question of should I, it goes to the issue of ideal. Because what? of ideal. Because just because, right? It, just because the thing, and just because I'm not indulging myself doesn't mean that there isn't a better way to do it. So think about the sages. The sages, they would delay eating lunch for two hours, right? I mean, clearly they're allowed to eat lunch at the regular time. Why were they delaying it? Right. Because if I, because. I need to eat, but I don't really need to eat now. And if I eat later, the citra gets a little kick. Yeah. So even though it's perfectly fine for me to eat now, Should I right? It's, yeah. So you end up with these, right? Now, the problem is most Jews, Orthodox Jews, where do they spend their life? They spend a lot of their life over here. Yeah. And what happens if you spend your life over there? So I want you to think about this. How would you feel if your financial situation was you were on the edge of bankruptcy every month? That would be kind of stressful, right? Yeah. How would you feel if you were taking a walk and you're walking on the edge of a cliff? Right? If you, if you go to the doctor on a regular basis and you're always getting it tested to see if maybe you have a terminal disease. Right? You can see like how like that mode of living is very unappealing, right? Yeah. Now, according to Hasidus, where should you be living? Like, you shouldn't even be worried about this kind of stuff. No. Your question should be, you should be like hovering around here, right? Where there's what you're allowed to do. And in what you're allowed to do, you're sometimes trying to strive to do the ideal way you should. And you're trying to differentiate between what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do, even though it's technically permitted. So, like, where are you relative to the stuff that you're not allowed to do? You're, like, way away from that, right? And, of course, in order to do that, the only way to think about this is having Judaism be an actual connection to Hashem, right? It's not about, like, a list of do's and don'ts, because this is very individualized, right? Is there any shulchan for differentiating these three categories? No. So it means you have to be kind of honest with yourself, have a personal mentorship, have a, your own sense of Hashem, right? This is very dynamic, adventurous. You can use lots of different words to describe it, but it's not walking on the edge of a cliff where there's a question, maybe you're going to like cross a red line, right? So you see the difference between the Judaism, where Judaism is defined by what the Shulchan Aruch says you're allowed and not allowed to do versus what we're talking about over here? The problem is you know, this requires Judaism to be your Judaism. Whereas this Judaism is impersonal, right? So you see the, the issue about how like most Judaism is practiced versus how Hasidus wants it to be practiced? Which is why like the Hasid doesn't even get into the question, is it forbidden? It's like, how did that become the issue? If that has become the issue, something has already gone horribly wrong. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. Now, I want to also make clear there are these middle categories, right? It is not just what you should do versus what's not allowed to be done, right? 
Sometimes people go to the opposite extreme. It's like either I'm doing something the most ideal way or it's equivalent to sinning. Is that also true? No. And one other thing. If you do something that you're not allowed to do because you made an error in judgment, is that a sin? No. Well, if you just simply didn't know? You made an error in judgment. You thought that there really is a, you, you know, you, there is an error. There, you, no, some, no, that's something that no one's allowed to do. That's what I'm talking about. It's like, you're like, I really could use some sugar in my coffee. I'm just using that as an example. Because that'll like give me the pick-me-up that I need. And really, you're just deluding yourself and you're like lying to yourself. But you weren't honest enough about it to realize that. Is that a sin? It's not a sin. I mean, it's not good, but it's not a sin, right? The sin would be consciously indulging. Like knowing there's no point, but I can do it because it feels good, right? So even if you end up doing some of the stuff that you're, quote, not allowed to do, but if you did it because you had made an error in judgment and thought it was in this category, that's fine. It's part of, it's part of the dynamic of living. You see what I'm saying? Whereas here, if you may do something you're not allowed to do because of an error in judgment, that actually is a sin. Because why didn't you learn? Why didn't you ask a rabbi? There's an objective fact of the matter you could have found out, right? Mm. I don't know. Like, if you ate something in someone's house and they didn't tell you what they put inside, it's completely not your fault. That's not, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> what I'm talking about is, let's say you ate something that wasn't kosher because you didn't check the hefsher. No. Or you did something on Shabbos that was forbidden. You should have found out. Well, why didn't you learn Hilchah Shabbos? Why didn't you add, like, there's a, right? There's unavoidable things, and there's things that had you been more careful are avoidable. Right. I'm responsible. Well, responsible for that. It's actually there's a law. If you don't know the if what if you don't know the bracha on a food, what do you, what bracha do you make on it? Wrong. No. If you don't know the bracha on a food, do you know the bracha you make on the food? You do not eat the food until you find out the correct bracha. That's the law. Really? No. If I've been making If that's it's, it's wrong. It's forbidden. If you don't know the bracha on the food. You're, you're, no. You're not. A, oh, the rule is if the halacha isn't clear, you make shakal. Are you a reference? No, but this actually says in Shulchan Aruch. So if I have a food and I don't know what bracha it is, and I have a viable way of finding out, I have to find out. So if I don't know because I don't know the laws of brachas, the laws of brachas, I don't know. Call the rabbi, ask the food, right? Now at the end of the day, it could be that the, the halacha isn't clear. There's no way to figure out exactly the. Right? There, there could be doubts that aren't you don't know. It's just it's not knowable. Then the shaka will come. Right. So stuff that you don't know because you didn't bother to find out and do something that's forbidden, that's a sin. Something that you're not allowed to do personally because it's not good. It doesn't really. It's just indulgent. But you tried to make the right judgment call. Maybe you were wrong because you know it's hard to be completely objective with yourself all the time. It's not a sin. It's not good. But it's not a sin. Well, it's a sin of not making decisions. No, because it's no because making yourself holy is when you know for yourself that it's indulgent. If you're trying to do over here and right. you make an error in judgment. Right. So it's like you don't have to be uptight. The uptightness that exists on what's not allowed for anybody doesn't exist over here. Yeah. No, but the uptightness over there is being conscious and not wanting to. But it's not about being uptight. It's about being honest with yourself. There's a difference. Okay. Being honest with yourself is not. You, and the contrary, if you're uptight, you can't be honest with yourself. I mean, I don't just think I should do in that area, and I don't. Okay, but it's not about being uptight. It's just about being, you know, being brutally honest with yourself. It's a different kind of thing. You're not like it's not a tense thing. It's like. I'm very you know, what makes it, you know what makes it stressful? Yeah. One of two things. Either that you're not, being at, you're not making an honest assessment, yeah. 
And so you're trying to pretend to, to live in a way that you're not really shy to. And so that has a level of stress. Or you don't, or, or you've made a decision on some level that you're gonna do the wrong thing anyway. And that creates a stress of your own internal hypocrisy and you don't wanna like face that. It's one of those two. Because if, if a person is doing what they should do that is right, there isn't stress. There's effort, but there's not stress. Think about, think about, think, like you can be at peace with something and it can be very hard. Those are not contradictory, right? Yeah, yeah. The stress comes when you're not at peace with it. So either you're not at peace because you're deluding yourself about what you're really capable of or you're deluding yourself about what you really decided. Yeah. Right? Like there are people like just giving, people sometimes like go, like they'll take a major in college, but they never really decided to major in that thing. That kind of was like a decision that kind of thrust on them. And they experience a tremendous amount of stress because they're doing something that they're not really committed to doing. Right? So they've deluded themselves about their own choice. Or maybe they really committed to doing it, but they, they, had to, they were deluded about what it actually entails, and I don't realize that they're not really capable of that. That's also the case. All reasons why it's important to have a mentor. There should be a... Thank you. All right. So tomorrow we will have a surprise. Can we have the beginning of chapter forty-seven?